I want to draw us back to our worship guide, not, not for the sake of going back through and re-rehearsing what we did, but even in singing that last set of songs just was pressed and how that is drawing us to the truths that we're trying to, um, seeking to put before us as we look at our identity series. We, we began today looking at the greatness of, of Yahweh, our triune God, and this call that we're to praise Him. And again, remember back, we, we can't rightly praise Him if we don't rightly love Him and know Him. Right, so that's tying into the love of God. Looking at what it says about Him. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then we see um, the next to the last verse. Yahweh preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. Exodus 34. Yahweh, Yahweh. God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity who by no means clear the guilty. So we look and say, this greatness of this God, we've praised Him and we've worshipped Him. He is gracious and merciful, yet He is just. And we see as we sing um, that it is in Christ who has redeemed us. It is in Christ that we see the grace and mercy and the justice of God displayed most fully. And in that, we're drawn to this reality that He has saved us um, out of His love for us and given us the love for Him. I, I want to draw, I, I, even as we were singing them, I, I wanted to reread the last two songs, but I'm not going to do that. But I do want to draw us to that next to last song, or that last song we just sang, All I Have is Christ. And understand, as, and again, this is tying us into where we were last week and where we're going this week, but understand what we just sing about God and what we just sing about ourselves. If we grasp what we just sing, there's a, the meme that goes around Facebook every now and then. And it, it shows in different forms, but it basically says, I don't really care what you can say about me. I sing worse things about myself on Sunday in church. I hope we grasp what we just sing about ourselves in that last song. And what we sing about the goodness of God and His love for us. Look at, look at what it says in verse 1. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. I hope we, I hope we get what we're singing. And how that ties to God's love for us, our love for Him, that will necessarily flow to our love for each other. We were not good little boys and girls on our way to Him, and He just reached out a hand. We were rebels headed wholeheartedly at war against Him to sit under His wrath. And He loved us and gave us a love for Him and saved us in Christ Jesus. He snatched us out of our own course and set us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has loved us and He has given us the love for Him that we were reminded of last week. We saw last week this love we're to have for God out of His love for us is to be a love that is um, supreme to God over all else. A love that in a very real way is divisive. 
again, in a, in a culture where even in the church, we, we tend to think that, that all singing around the campfire of Kumbaya is the ultimate goal when what we should be seeking to do is to love God supremely and therefore love those around them by proclaiming the truth to them. We saw that last week as we looked at this reality that to love father or mother or children or wife or any other earthly relationship or thing more than God is not worthy of him. Our supreme love for God necessarily flows into a sacrificial love for each other. So we see coming out of last week this distinct love that is to be for God above all other relationships does not negate those other relationships. Rather, it spurs us to love them rightly and love them sacrificially. Again, I hope as we look at our our mission statement and this thing we're walking through with loving God supremely and loving others sacrificially and living distinctly, we didn't just pull this out of thin air and thought it sounded nice. This is the call of the scriptures to us. We're to love God that necessarily loves others, that necessarily lives in obedience to him. Again, in Matthew 22, if you would flip there, I want us to see this truth. Pastor Jimmy pointed us back to this last week. Looking at Jesus' answer of what is the greatest commandment. Look in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. We looked at that last week. We're to love God supremely. With every part of us completely, we're to love him. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus necessarily links these two commands together. If we love God, we will love other people. And if we're going to rightly love other people, we must love God most of all. We see this truth. Flip with me in John, 1 John chapter 4. I'm not going to flip all over the place, but I want us to see these as we set this to understand how what we're looking at over these next three weeks, especially last week and this week, tie together. Look at 1 John chapter 4. We'll reference back to 1 John 3 a little later. But 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse... Um, let's start in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, again, we're going to hit this later. Brother being fellow believer in this context. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Paraphrase what John just said. If you say you love God and don't love other believers, you don't love God. I hope we see that the tie of what we're going to look at today coming out of what we looked at last week, they're not separate things. One necessarily flows 
from the other. If we're going to rightly say and honestly say that I love God as best I can, understanding that until that day, we'll never, we'll never fully love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why every week we're reminded of our need for Christ. But we're drawn to desire to love him. We're growing in our love for him. But understand, we, we can't love him if we don't love the brethren. If we don't love, I would argue as image bearers, but at least most specifically, those who are our family in Christ, who bear his name, then we don't love God. Right? So we see as we look at our text for today, Matthew 25, if you can flip there. We see in our text today, again, looking, we saw last week looking at a judgment division among people's text. This week, we're going to look at a judgment division among people's text. And brace yourself next week, we will, as well as we look kind of at judgment theme in Matthew with that. But in this text this week, Jesus is going to be pointing us to that day when we will be called before the throne and looks at an aspect of what we will be judged upon. And ultimately, that is how we have loved the brethren. Look at Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that as we look at the weightiness of this text, the weightiness of the judgment to come, we would be drawn more of a love for you, more of a love and dependency of the reality of what we just sang, that all we have is Christ. And that would be drawn to grow in our love for each other. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen. Jesus in this text is looking at the final judgment, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. This is not the first time in Matthew Jesus has dealt with this. There's been multiple places, not the least of which is Matthew 13. We've looked at those parables before. 
The parable of the wheat and the tares or the parable of the fish and the net. And there's the sorting on that last day of the good fish from the bad fish. Or the, again, the wheat from the tares. The, on that last day, they will be sorted out. Matthew 24, the chapter leading up to this, Jesus has taught multiple things about his return and the coming of Christ and the judgment that would come in that. Even leading up to this in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Again, where there's ten virgins, five of which brought oil for the lamp, five of which did not and were not ready when the bridegroom appeared and they were left out. Or the parable of the talents where we'll give an account for what we do with what the Lord has given us and how we use those things for Him. And now Jesus comes to the, again to this section dealing with the final judgment. And he, He's pointing to, again, this is not an exhaustive teaching of that day, but it is an aspect of that day that we need to grasp and understand Again, even as we think about our loving each other sacrificially because Jesus is tying our love for each other sacrificially and what that means for us that day. But look at what it speaks of on that day. Look at, one, who it is that is doing the judging. When the Son of Man comes, just so there's no confusion, that's Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. And before him will all the nations be gathered. The one who is the judge is Christ. He sits on the throne and he is going to sort and divide among the nations. As we think of this idea that Christ being the judge on that day. uh, J.C. Ryle said this. And I I thought it was fitting as as we think about the reality of, of Christ sitting on his throne on that day and us standing before him. He says this, let believers think of this and take comfort. The one who sits on the throne on that great and dreadful day will be their savior, their shepherd, their high priest, their elder brother and their friend. When they see him, they will have no cause to be alarmed. Let the unconverted people think of this and be afraid. Their judge will be that very Christ whose gospel they now despise and whose gracious invitations they refuse to hear. How great will be their confusion at that last day if they go on in unbelief and die in their sins. To be condemned on the day of judgment by anyone will be awful. But to be condemned by the one who would have saved them will be awful indeed. Again, we see this reality of Christ being the one who sits on the judgment seat who will judge the nations. And as Ryle reminds us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, that is a great comfort. For we are in him. For those who are not in Christ Jesus, that is a great dread and fear. Um, because as Ryle pointed us to, the one who would have been the Savior is now the judge. Um, and so may we today, as we look at this reality, be drawn to um, go to him and look to him while he is yet there to be Savior. And Jesus goes from the reality that he will be the one judging, sitting on the throne. And then he looks at what this judgment is going to look like. Look at verse 32. Before him he will separate. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So Jesus points to this picture of there being a gathering of the nations. All those who have 
have dwelt upon the earth will be gathered before him. And there will not just be a gathering, there will be a dividing. Jesus speaks of dividing the sheep among the goats. We looked last week at a division that necessarily takes place in our love for God and that we're dividing among those who love him and those who do not even here on this earth. But even in that, there's a veiled kind of division for we can't rightly and fully see who are those who are his and who are those who are not. We see that all throughout the scriptures. But on this day, there will be no more confusion. On this day, there will be no more wondering who's, who's a part of the kingdom and who is not. For Jesus will come and all the, all the peoples of the nations will be gathered before him and there will be a sorting. And the good shepherd will be the one doing the dividing. Dividing the sheep from the goats. Again, we don't grasp some of that because we, we see sheep and we think sheep that we see with the white furry things and we see the goats and we think the ones we, we normally see, a short-haired goat. But understanding this culture and this time and even in cultures today, there are types of sheep and types of goat that just seeing out in the pasture, you wouldn't necessarily know which one was which just from eye shot. And Jesus is saying on that day, like a good shepherd, he will sort the sheep to be on his right hand and the goats to be on his left. And it's not a, a, a separating just so he can separate the kinds. It's a separating unto judgment. We're going to see the goats will be separated unto punishment. But the righteous, the sheep, look at what it says. Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep... Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so Jesus is, is teaching them on that day there's going to be this sorting. There's sheep and the goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And to the sheep, he's going to say, Come, you are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Come and receive the promised inheritance that has been told of you. And so Jesus speaks of this idea of a sorting and a sorting unto blessing and a sorting unto judgment. But he also gives the basis upon which this sorting will be done. And this is where I want us to focus today as we look at this idea of loving each other sacrificially because Jesus necessarily links the judgment on that day to how we love each other sacrificially here. So what is the basis for the sheep being put on the right and being blessed by the Father and inheriting the kingdom? Look at what he says in verse 35 um, and 36. Why are they to inherit this? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Notice what Jesus says. It's because you, you served sacrificially. But notice who Jesus says they're serving. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. You clothed me. You visited me. Again, look at even what it, it says here. Providing material needs. He was hungry and they fed him. He was thirsty and they gave him drink. He, he was naked and they clothed him. 
But not just in physical needs, but in hospitable needs. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus is speaking to them and saying, you're you're blessed by my father. Come inherit the kingdom because you did these things to me. Jesus is tying the service of him and to him directly linked to this judgment and this sorting. But then what's astounding is we should be asking the same question they ask. When did we serve you? When did we feed you, Jesus? Because again, understand, Jesus is on earth for 33 years. The majority of the people standing before him on that day will not have seen him in incarnate state. Will not have had an opportunity to have brought him food or clothe him or welcome him. And so in verse 36, or the 37, they, they ask like we would think they would. They'll answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? I won't go through the whole list, but they look at Jesus and they said, you, you told us we did these things to you, but when did we do that? Because we never, we never physically saw you and we were never able to do this to you. When did we do it? And look at what he says. And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus said, you want to know when you fed me? You want to know when you gave me drink or clothed me or visited me? Anytime you did it to one of these who were mine. Again, my brothers, when that is used throughout the New Testament, is pointing to those who are in Christ. Jesus speaks of his brothers or his friends being those who do his will, being those who are his. Again, we see it in 1 John 3, how we love the brothers. Jesus is pointing to this reality that as we serve the body of Christ and cared for and loved sacrificially the body of Christ, we we were doing it to him. And again, notice, they didn't even know. They weren't sitting around saying, oh, we're serving Jesus. We're, We're actually giving food to Jesus in the midst of this. We're serving him. They just served the body. But Jesus tells them, as you did it to them, you did it to me. It's important for us to note before we look at the specifics of what they were doing and how that could look to us. Jesus necessarily links how we treat and love the body to how we treat and love him. Necessarily so. We saw it in the text last week. If you go to chapter 10, verse 42, flip there with me. Chapter 10, where we were at last week with... Pastor Jimmy. Chapter 10, look at verse 40 and 42. Whoever receives you, receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives the righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is the disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Even in that teaching last week of our love for Christ, Jesus is pointing to this reality. If you love me and you receive me, you will receive those who are mine. You will care for those who are mine. And while we are called to show a general love to the world, there is a greater love, obligation, and judgment with how we love those who are in the church. We saw it even earlier in our confession, Galatians chapter 6. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So as we look today and we look at this reality that this is how we love the brethren, that is not at all negating saying we don't seek to feed those or clothe those or give cups of water to those who are not a part of the body. There's a general, just as God in his grace makes it rain on the just and the unjust. And we saw in Psalm 145, all eyes look to him and he gives them food. But I hope we understand there is a distinction and an obligation that is far greater in how we love the body of Christ. We see it in, in 2 Corinthians. I won't flip to that text, but we see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where the Macedonians have given, even in their poverty, they gave to great sacrifice to themselves to meet the needs of the church. And again, Jesus is necessarily linking how we love each other to how we love Him. And as we look at this, I want us to note something else. As Jesus is pointing to this reality, that in the sense the judgment is going to be judged upon how we love the brethren, how we love those who are in the body of Christ, Jesus is not at all teaching a works-based righteousness here. He's not teaching that on that day we are, we're going to be kind of weighed out with how well we love the body versus how well we didn't love the body. And as long as the scales go in our favor, we get to go into the kingdom. Jesus teaches against that in everything that he teaches. We even see that in the response of the people. They weren't doing it thinking, ah, I'm going to give this cup of cold water and Jesus is going to love me. They're surprised this is even brought up. But what we are seeing in this text is that judgment will not be based upon our works in the sense that our works will save us. But we do see our works give evidence to whether or not our faith in Christ and our love for God is actually genuine. That is taught all throughout Scripture. Our works will give evidence on that day to the reality of our faith. While our works do not save us and our works do not merit the righteousness of Christ and our works do not merit the love of God, our works will be laid out upon that day to give evidence. You did love God and you did have faith in Christ. How do we know? Because you did these things. We see this again throughout the scriptures. James chapter 2. James is often pitted against Paul trying to say that he teaches a workspace righteousness, but he's pointing to the same reality that Jesus is pointing to here. 
James chapter 2, a text that will be familiar to some of us. In chapter, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he can have faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James is pointing to the reality. You say you have faith, then you're going to have works that evidence that faith. Faith is not merely a verbal assent. Faith being reconciled to God and born again necessarily flows to evidentiary work in us. And look at what James points to. He's pointing to the same thing Jesus does. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? James is linking the evidence of this work of faith to, to show our faith, not to earn it, not to, not to justify it, but to actually if we can look and say, do I have faith? We can look and see. Is there evidence that God is working through me? James points to the same thing Jesus is pointing to on the final judgment. Are we loving each other sacrificially to the point of meeting the needs of the people that we see in the body of Christ? Again, flip back to 1 John chapter 3. We were in 4 earlier, but flip to, flip to 1 John chapter 3 because I want us to, again, see this link. First John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 11. For this is the message that you had heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Again, what evidence that we have that we have been made new in Christ, that our faith is in him? We love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And again, how does John point to us laying down our lives and loving each other? Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then listen to where John goes after this. By this we shall know that we are the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before him. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and, he does and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John even goes on to say that, yes, the evidence we have that we love God is that we love the brothers. He goes on to say this is, this is one of the ways we can assure our hearts when our hearts begin to condemn us. One of the ways we can assure our hearts is we can look and see, has God changed me in a way to where I love the brethren? Sacrificially love them. 
Now again, I, I, I want to. It's always good to quote the Puritans most times. Can't remember which one it was, but for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks to the Savior. I want us to point, our, our hope of our assurance is not us. Our hope of our assurance is not even looking at our fruit. The hope of our assurance is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That He pleads His righteousness on our behalf. But 1 John's written as a test. 1 John's written so that we would analyze and evaluate ourselves. Is there evidence this is true of us? Because He didn't save us and just leave us. And one of the ways that we can assure ourselves that we truly love God is am I loving those who are a part of his body sacrificially? Am I seeking to meet their needs and to care for them? Am I loving, as he points to in verse 18, not in word or in talk, but in deed? It's one thing to say I love the body of Christ. It's one thing to say I love the people of God. It's another thing to actually love the people of God. If you look back in chapter 25 of our text for today, Matthew, Jesus gives specific things of how they loved Him by loving His people. And look at the specific things Jesus pointed out. Again, we see aspects of this where there was a meeting of physical need. For I was hungry and you gave me drink, he says in verse 35. Or I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Again, he goes down later with a physical need. I was naked and you clothed me. We see one aspect in which we love the people of God sacrificially is we give of our own resources that God has given us at times even to our own hurt to make sure that the brothers and sisters around us have their needs met. Now I want to point this out as we look at these. This is not exclusive to the body of, of Christ locally. Right? This isn't just we're going to love the people of Oak Valley and not worry about the people of the body of Christ outside of Oak Valley. There's a sense in which this is true of the, 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 the church universal. But I do think there is a greater... Again, God has called us together. We know the needs of those people who are a part of this body far more than we know the people who are across the world. While we are called to, to do these things to the church at large, there is a greater sense of obligation and responsibility we have for those who are in the body of Christ. And so Jesus is pointing us to this reality that there's a sense in which our sacrificial love for each other goes in making sure that the physical needs of those who are a part of the body are met. Again, this is limited. Jesus speaks here of food and clothing and water. But even beyond that, do we know of physical needs? Do we know of needs within the body of Christ that the person needs to sustain and function and go throughout life? Are we seeking to meet them? Are we using the resources the Lord has given us to go about meeting them? In this, there's a conviction, even on my part. I was talking with Adam earlier, and there, it seems like every text you teach, whenever you have to study it and, and preach it, there's a sense in which you feel like you shouldn't stand up and preach it because all you did was get beat by it all week. 
but this one especially so. As we look at this reality that we're to, we're to love and to give of the body of Christ. And yet how often am I, are we, so myopic and so consumed with our own needs. And I sit that in quotations because we have things that we would demand that we need that we don't. We get so caught up in our world. Well, if I give that to them, then this thing I've been saving up for, this thing I've been wanting to do may not be able to happen for me. And we get so consumed with us that we don't seek out ways to serve the body. Now, I will say to the encouragement here, this is not to take away the blunt of this text, but I will say I, I see that done here in ways that I've never seen it done in other churches I've served. I will say that. We care for each other well. And we seek to meet each other's needs well. But we're, we're called to make sure the physical needs of those around us are met. And I'll throw this caveat out there as well. Um, some of that means that if you have that need, you need to let the church know so that we can help you meet that need. We may not know. We, we may not know your car ended up in the shop and, and you're struggling to be able to make that, that to get it fixed so that you can still put gas in it once you get it fixed. We may not know that a medical bill came up that you can't handle. We may not know that they cut your wages at work and you're in a tight spot. We may not know these things. Let us Part of the, the body serving each other in this way is us letting each other know what we need and when we need it so that we can do that. So Jesus speaks of this idea of a physical need being met, but he also speaks of other aspects of ways that they we're to serve the body of Christ and therefore serve him. Some of which is, is going to somewhat sound odd in our current culture. But the aspect and truth of it is no less. What he says in verse 35. After he said he was hungry and you gave him food, he was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Understanding um, they didn't have the Holiday Inn Express on every corner when a believer would go from town to town or for whatever he was doing. And Jesus is speaking of this idea of believers coming in town and other believers welcoming them. I don't know you, but you're a part of the body of Christ. And so I take you in and I welcome you into the family. I welcome you into my home. I serve you and make sure you're cared for and you have provision while you're here. I was sick and you visited me. Again, that one's we see often. But visiting not because what's it's you know it's so and so and they're in the hospital and we want to bring them a, a casserole, which is good bring casseroles. But it's because you're my brother, or you're my sister, and I love you, and I don't only want to visit you, I want to see how I can care for you and meet your needs and serve you while I visit you as you're sick. And then he says, and I was in prison, and you came to me. Um, and the writer of Hebrews says, and remember those who were in chains, as if in chains with them, pointing to this same reality. Again, I want to be careful here, because I think there, there can be a good point to make in it. What we often see with prison ministries, they'll take verses like this, and it's, see, we were in prison, and you visited me, and that's why we go into the prisons. I think we should go into the prison. We did it at Oak Valley until they shut everything down, and we've been knocking on their door trying to get them to let us back in and they haven't done that yet. I think, I think we should go into the prisons, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. 
What Jesus is pointing at here is, I was in prison for the sake of the name of Christ. And you bore the reproach of being identified with me. And you came and you visited me. You came and you brought me food and clothing because they weren't going to give it to me. And you made sure I had it. You came knowing that if you came and visited me in prison because I was in prison for preaching and proclaiming the gospel and bearing the name of Christ, that you would be identified with me and you may not be visiting me next time. You may be beside me. That we love in that even when those are bearing reproach for the name of Christ, we go alongside them and bear the reproach with them to make sure they are cared for in love and know that they have not been left. Again, some of these are lost in our culture. I don't know that they will be forever. And Jesus is saying, you did it to me. And again, they come in with, when do we do it to you? And he says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Again, understanding the vitalness of this. Jesus is necessarily linking how we serve and love and care for the body of Christ to it actually being done to him. We see the same in Acts chapter 9. If you're familiar with the conversion of Saul, Jesus knocks him off his horse. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Paul persecuting? The church. And Jesus said, you're persecuting me. Jesus here is teaching that same truth. Understand the necessity of, of, of this. How we treat each other is necessarily linked to how we actually love God. Not how we proclaim to love Him, but how we actually love Him. So as Jesus is teaching here, as John's taught in 1 John, if we walk through life and we see the needs of the church and we do nothing about it, or we walk through life and there's hostile, broken relationships and we do nothing and there's, there's hatred and bitterness and barriers and walls and there's all these things going in in life and we treat the brothers in this cold, calloused way, Jesus is teaching here, John is teaching in 1 John, and all of Scripture proclaims, don't stand up and say you love God. And Jesus is drawing us here to this sacrificial love we are to have for one another. And I also want to point this out. As we look at this reality of loving each other in this way. And this is, this is not a you need to join Oak Valley statement. I hope you would love for you to. I hope you do. We're going to have a membership class coming up. But that's not what this is. But it is a you need to join a church statement. I see no way we carry this out if we're not an active part of the body of Christ. We can't. You can't bounce around from church to church every other Sunday. You can't sit at home and watch it on live stream. You can't just say it's me and Jesus under a tree and carry this out. Because you don't know people you're not involved in the lives of people. You're not connected to people. And you can't serve them and meet their needs and love them if you're not with them and don't know them. So again, hear me. If it's not Oak Valley, it needs to be somewhere. 
that you find a church that preaches the truths of Scripture, that teaches the gospel and points you to follow Christ, that you can actively know and love people and be known and loved by them. We cannot fulfill this in isolation. It's impossible. So as we look at this, there's a couple of questions that, that pressed me that I had to think through and I'm still thinking through and still wrestling through because the heart is fickle. As we look at this and Jesus is teaching and I don't, I don't want to... We, we stopped at 40 because we're looking at our sacrificial love for each other, but I don't want to be lost what happens in 41 through 46. Jesus then looks at those on the left and said, you didn't do these things. You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me. And they're going to ask the same question that the righteous did. When did we not do this? Jesus' answer is going to be the same. You didn't do it to them. You didn't do it to me. And whereas the sheep are called into um, an inheritance to be blessed by the Father, the wicked are go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. So there's serious implications in this reality. Eternity is at stake as we think through these things. Again, understanding I'm not saved by the way I love you and you're not saved by the way you loved me. We're saved by Christ. But we can't claim to have him if we don't love each other. So as I think through that, there's, there's just questions that, that press me. The first question I had to think through, and I'm again still thinking through. Does our, does my professed love of God match up with my demonstrated love for his people? Does the way that I say I love God, that I sing about how I love God, that I would tell everybody else that I love God, and I post on Facebook and Instagram and whatever about how much I love Jesus, does that match up with how I physically, actively, and viewably love his people? Because if it doesn't, then we need to be really honest about our actual love for God but by the way it demonstrates our love for his people. Jesus says it. John says it. I'm not making it up. Does my, does my professed love for God match my demonstrated love for his people? Second question we have to ask and answer is, are we committed to the life of a local body that would most easily give us the opportunity to live this out? Again, in that, I'm not even asking, are you a member of a local church? Is your name on a roll somewhere? I'm not asking, do you show up and sit in a pew every Sunday or a cushy seat? I'm asking, are you involved in the lives of the people and the life of that church in a way that you would know the needs of the people and be able to love them in this sacrificial way? And are we allowing ourselves to be known in such a way to where people can love us in this sacrificial way? Are we committed to the life of the body in a way that would enable us to know these needs and be able to meet them and love each other in this way? And then the last question is just practical. Are we loving each other sacrificially with our time and our resources? 
Am I demonstrating and showing my love for the body in the way that I will give of my own resources and I will give of my own time by taking time out to sit with them and visit them and serve them and love them and welcome them into my home? Not out of obligation, but out of genuine love for God that flows into a genuine love for his people. Not so that I can check it off of a list and say, okay, I loved, I loved the body of Christ this week. I had so and so over. Check. Where it just naturally flows out of us because we love God and therefore we love his people. Are we loving each other sacrificially with our time and with our resources? As we look at this idea of loving each other sacrificially, we're drawn to, again, what causes us and enables us to love each other sacrificially. This isn't natural. We even read it as we began to go out. We read the compelling community. What, what, makes, what draws us to love each other? What draws us to be committed to each other? It's not because we like the same sports team or we come from the same area. It's because we're family. It's because we have been purchased by Christ and that is what unites us. And as we look at that truth, we we see that what draws us into love of each other is the love that God has shown for us. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, that a man lays down his life for his brothers. And yes, he was pointing to his disciples to lay down their life, but he's pointing that out of the context of saying he's going to lay down his life for them. Understand so that I'm clear today. If you're here... And, and your conviction is, man, I'm not loving people more, so I need to, I need to just go out and, and love people more. You've caught half and missed the other half. This is evidence that we don't love Christ and we don't grasp his love for us like we should. If you're not in Christ, you cannot love his people. If you're not in Christ, you cannot love God. Christ is the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And unless we are united to God in him, we will not love rightly. We will not love the brethren. So the point of this text is not if you're not loving, go love. The point of this text is if you have no love for the brethren, it's because you have no love for Christ. So go to Christ the Redeemer who has purchased us and bought us. Go to Christ. Who though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by becoming a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Go to the one who loved sacrificially unto death to save his people. And for those who were in Christ... The response to this, if you're convicted by ways you've not been loving the body of Christ well, is not to turn inward and say, how can I love the body of Christ more? Lift your eyes to Christ who has loved you. Who has redeemed you. Who has forgiven you and justified you. And now, then look to the body of Christ and say, and he has done so to them and they are I am joined to them as I am joined to him.
He is our head and we are all one body. Because he has loved me. And because I love him, I will love his people. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we are thankful for the love you have shown us. Father, you have loved us before the foundation of the world. And in love, you predestined us for adoption. Christ, you have loved us in that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You love us in that while we are still floundering people, you you ever live to make intercession for those who are yours. Spirit, you have loved us in that you have taken hearts of stone and made hearts of flesh. You love us in that you have sealed us for that promised inheritance. You love us in that you continue to shape us and conform us to the image of Christ. To convict us of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. God, you have loved us in ways that we only know the fringes of. And God, as we dwell upon that truth, we pray and ask that you would convict us and show us and reveal to us ways that we um, love you in profession far more than we love your people in demonstration. Convict us of the ways that our professed love for you does not match up in our shown love for your body. Father, I pray for this particular body. I pray for Oak Valley that we would love each other sacrificially in such a way that the love of you would be demonstrated to this world as they look and see and watch. Father, that you would give us humility to ask for help that that would allow others to love us and serve us when we need it. That you would give us humility to give of ourselves and to love and serve out of our love for you and your love for us as we seek to care for one another well. Father, we're reminded of the words of Christ that they would know we are yours and your disciples by the love we have for one another. Father, would you grow that in us as you continue to good work that we know you will continue to work in us until you complete it on that day. It's through Christ our high priest. By the Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.